Acts chapter 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and when he had seized him, that is Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and roused him, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself, put on your sandals. And so he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when he had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along <clears throat> one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and res rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they had opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison. And he said, report these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. And now when day came and there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter, and when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes, we pray, that we might see wonderful things in your word, wonderful things about you are God, your power, your grace, your glory, your kingdom, and your ability to work even in the midst of great heartache, troubles, and trials in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus promised, I will build my church. 
And I hope you have been noticing over the last 11 chapters in the book of Acts that that is indeed exactly what happened. Christianity was on the march. It began there in Jerusalem among Jewish people who embraced the gospel by faith. And then the gospel continued to move. It didn't just stay there. It moved and went into an area we call Samaria among half-Jews. And that population embraced the gospel. And then beyond that, it went, now we've noticed in this last uh, passage of Scripture in chapter 11, the gospel then went into a cosmopolitan, diverse, urban area called Syrian Antioch, a huge city in the Roman Empire. And the people there who are pagans, people who have no religious background, Gentiles as it were, they too embraced the gospel. See, the gospel was powerfully moving outward. It was overcoming generational prejudice. It was overcoming racial pride. It was overcoming religious intolerance. And the momentum for gospel expansion, however, when we come to chapter 12, verse 1, this, this momentum of moving in this tremendously outward direction all of a sudden faces a serious threat. The threat is brutal, intimidating, unjust persecution. Specifically, it applies to a local Roman ruler by the name of Herod, who laid hands, it says, look at there, chapter 12, verse 1, laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. Now let's get some background here before we move into the overall content of this passage. I want us just to understand that the Herod that's mentioned here in verse 1 of chapter 12 is Herod Agrippa. So you've got to get a grip on that name, okay? Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa had an uncle, another Herod we read about in the Bible, whose actual, his name is Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas, the uncle of this particular Herod, was the one we read about in the Gospels, who was dealing with Jesus during the years of his, remember he had his trial, he remember he had that crazy trial, which is a mockery, and he was the one that had called for the execution of Jesus, that was Herod Antipas. Now the Herod here, again, Herod Agrippa, in chapter 12, verse 1 of Acts, is the grandson of another Herod. Just to confuse you, make sure you're really confused now. So we have Herod Agrippa, the one we're talking about. We had Herod, Herod, Herod Antipas, the one who was in the Gospels when put Jesus to death. And now we're preceding him to when Jesus was born. That's Herod the Great. Herod the Great, of course, was one who had rebuilt the temple. Anyway, it's just a crazy family system. All of these numerous children that Herod the Great had. And this is his grandson, Herod Agrippa. He was popular, more popular than most of those Roman rulers. Why? He was popular among the Jews particularly because he himself had a Jewish ancestry. He had Jewish blood in his family tree. And so he is one who constantly is popular and, and uh, favorable among them, but he wants to make sure he stays favorable with them in order to maintain this popularity among the Jews. He decides to put to death not just anybody, but he's clearly designating and going after the leadership of this exploding movement of Christianity in the church. 
He's going after their most influential leaders. And the first casualty was James. Now, there are numerous Jameses in the Bible, particularly New Testament, but this James is the brother of John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. These are two brothers added with Peter. They were the inner core circle, the three that accompanied Jesus on specific occasions. It's were uh, rather remarkable that they were there given the privilege of that kind of uh, detailed sharing with Christ. It is this, one of these, of the three inner, inner circle people who is being executed, it's James. And then he's going to pick another one of the inner circle of Peter. He's on the next on the list. Peter's arrested. Peter is awaiting execution after the Passover celebration finally dies down. It's not appropriate. You're not allowed to kill people during the execution. And, and so as a Jewish person with Jewish roots and, and obviously wanting to be popular among the Jews, obviously that's not something Herod Agrippa is going to do. And so we have Peter locked in prison. James has already been killed, and the clock is ticking. The question uh, raised at this time is, will this defiant, will this blasphemous human ruler, Herod Agrippa, will he succeed in his attempt to try to somehow destroy the church by decimating the leadership? Will the followers of Jesus cave in at this time to intimidation? Will they begin to sort of back off and stop evangelizing? And therefore, the result being that the collapse of Christianity will begin to, uh, to take place as less and less people are sharing the gospel. And even in its infancy, it just sort of stops at that point. Will the successes of the cause of Christ be reversed? Will the result be a paralyzing decline among church expansion? It's interesting to think about Jesus' promises I started with. He says, I will build my church. What does he go on to say in that same sentence? He says, and the gates of Hades, which means the place of death, the entrance, the gates, the entrance into the place of death will not stand against the church. It will not prevail against the church. What's he saying? He's saying that even death, even martyrdom, will not stop the church. It will actually be a place in which I will continue to build my church even in the face of that kind of opposition. And so this morning we're going to look at this chapter and we're going to divide it up in several different ways over the next, uh, I don't know if it would be two weeks or three, I'm not sure. But I want us to look this morning and to think about, as I have there in the title of the sermon, there's some fiery trials that we're going to learn about today and what it means to have faith in the midst of those trials. And next week we'll look at the idea of how futile it is to defy the living God. Let's think about trials this morning, first of all, in our first point. And notice that there is obviously the reality of fiery trials. Fiery trials are real. Christians are not immune from fiery trials. The church tried to come to grips with this particular trial of the burial of their beloved brother. The respected leader, James. And here he is put to death, and the remaining apostles who spent three years with Jesus, along with James, along with Peter, they know, 
And they had heard when they were during those three years of training, Jesus had warned them that they should expect this kind of outcome. If you have your Bible, keep your finger there in Acts. We'll go back to chapter to Luke chapter 21. And by the way, these are two very closely connected books, right? Luke is book one and Acts is book two written by Luke. Luke 21, page 1251, your pew Bible. Jesus is speaking here. He has already predicted that there would come a day when the temple complex would be destroyed. It's a radical prediction. It's unheard of. It just blows their minds to think that possibly could happen. He's talking about 70 A.D. and what's going to happen there. But he says before 70 A.D. came, there's another warning he offers. He begins saying in verse 10, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes, and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, notice that, Before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. So what do we learn here? We learn that Jesus is saying, listen, persecution is inevitable. You can be sure that it's going to take place for my followers. As a matter of fact, Jesus says in John 16, verse 33, he says, In this world, you, my followers, will have tribulation. It's not going to be an easy go of it. And interestingly enough, Peter, at a time uh, when Nero was feeding Christians to the lions in the Colosseum, when Nero is, is pouring out all sorts of animosity in persecution against the Christians, specifically targeting them. Peter writes the same thing about persecution and trials in his first epistle to other believers now in the Roman Empire who are suffering. They're scattered all around, suffering persecution. They are doing the right thing, and they're still being persecuted by Rome. He writes this, chapter 4, verse 12 in 1 Peter. Beloved, do not be surprised don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you what's he talking about this thing comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you he says listen this persecution that we're going through in the roman empire don't be shocked don't be stunned persecution and strong opposition to the cause of christ is the norm for god's people in this world. I think we all need to prepare ourselves for that reality. Persecution, you should be expecting it. Why? Well, letter A, fiery trials, including persecution, was predicted. It's predicted. It's something that we've been given plenty of warning and plenty of heads up. But secondly, having said that, When it comes to the execution of James, think about that. James was alive one day, and very soon thereafter, boom, he is gone. And along with that, you've got then Peter and this subsequent 
miraculous release. I mean, it's just an incredible, it, it reads like a, a movie, doesn't it? I mean, it's, you can just see all this stuff going on. and This miraculous leaf. And, and, and again, what I'm saying is when you think of the one and the other, James, who dies, and Peter, who escapes, not only are the fiery trials predicted, but they're also mysterious. Mysterious. How is it that one Christian leader was cut down in the prime of life and another one is allowed to live many, many years later and serve? How is it that Peter's chains fell off his hands and James's head is severed from his shoulders? How is it that God miraculously intervenes and frees Peter from this high-security prison here in Acts 12? And interestingly enough, if you still can remember chapter 5 of Acts, Peter also was miraculously freed from prison, if you recall, by God's direct intervention, opening doors miraculously, letting him go out. They couldn't figure out how he got out of there. How can that be taking place twice now but you've got also, right down the street, the dead bodies of Stephen and James laying in their graves. How is it, according to Hebrews chapter 11, that some who believed in God, these are followers of Jesus, people who were um, uh, faithful in their love of God, they were tortured, they were mocked, scourged, imprisoned in chains, afflicted, ill-treated. They lived destitute and homeless. They were stoned to death and sawn in two. They were executed by the sword. How is it that you have that group of people, but you also have another group of people mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36 to 38, where others by faith conquered kingdoms. Others by faith shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. How is it that some followers of Jesus have one outcome that seems quite favorable and another outcome for other followers of Jesus that seems the opposite? How is it that some followers of Jesus die of cancer in their 50s? Or others are killed in car accidents, and others live into their 90s? How is it that some kids enter the world and they never know who their earthly father is? Or they come into the world and their mother and father are divorced and they deal with the reality of their divorce the rest of their lives? And others grow up in an intact family and they know their mother and their father and they live together and there's a sense of amazing harmony as a family. I'm convinced that believing God and trusting Christ in the gospel does not make us immune from tragedy. It does not make us immune from trials. It does not make us immune from tribulation. If we learn anything in this text, we have to at least have that become something that sinks into our hearts and our souls and our minds we should expect to suffer in this world. 
Some of us dread going to doctors, medical situations, because we know there's needles there. And anytime they're going to draw blood from you or they're going to give you a shot, what do they usually say? This is going to pinch a little. It's going to feel like a pinch, right? Give you a little warning. Get ready. It's coming. Other times they tell you, other times they say, this is going to hurt a little, which is a nice thing. But what are they saying? You're going to suffer. There's going to be something coming here. You better prepare for it. So I think in some ways in this text, we're reminded what? Life in a fallen world is full of hurts and heartaches. There was true grief going on in the church in Jerusalem. James is dead. And so what I want to suggest again is we should not be surprised that the church of Jesus Christ faces a formidable foe. As I've thought about this, again, I'm convinced that Luke is trying to remind his readers, listen, this is nothing new. When you face opponents to the Christian faith, including even the civil authorities, don't be surprised. Satan seeks to do whatever he can to stop the church. But 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 10, he says, listen, be on the alert. Why? We have an enemy, the adversary, the devil. He's real, so we shouldn't be surprised. I don't know about you, but if I've read through this thing and thought about it and meditated on it more and more, I realize we're not provided answers to all the questions we have of this text. And so I fall back on Deuteronomy 29, 29. What a great verse to easily remember. Deuteronomy 29, 29. That's 29, 29. You have it? Deuteronomy 29, 29. You say, why doesn't, why doesn't God explain these things to me? It doesn't make sense. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. The fact is that we don't know why miraculous deliverances do happen for some. But for others, they are imprisoned. For others, they deal with tremendous sadness, sorrow, heartache, tragedy, trials. Some die. Let me just be very clear. God does not provide explanations to us for everything. But He does provide to us promises. There's a big difference. Big difference. So what do we stand on? Where do we find firm ground in the middle of lots of questions here as to what's happening in the church? When one person is put to death, another one's about ready to be killed, but he escapes miraculously. Well, I fall back on Romans 8, 28-29, right? God causes all things to work together. Not that God causes all things to be good, no, but He worked together for good. To those who what? Love Him. To those who are called according to His purpose. What is His purpose? He goes on to say in verse 29, that we be conformed to the image of His Son. So things are working out together for good to those who are the people of God, who love God, and who are going to be what? Made more like Christ through the process of sanctification. 
You can be sure that God is working that in his people, in whatever situation you're in. Also, another good one to hold on to when you can't make sense of things and there are many questions in your mind, Ephesians 1.11, God works all things, all things after the counsel of his will. Not some, all things. God has not explained why some people are cut down in the prime of life and others live much longer and are used by God for many years past their prime. So we're left with the reality of fiery trials. They happen. John Blanchard offers this helpful insight. He says, you know, God promises the Christian heaven after death, not before it. So we don't expect heaven in this world. Although maybe some of us maybe sometimes do expect heaven, but it's not a proper expectation. So don't be surprised by fiery trials. Expect rejection. Expect ridicule. Expect mysterious things that don't seem to add up in your mind that God sometimes miraculously frees people from situations that could be awful, and other times they go through it to the end. There's much more I could say about that, but I want to move on to the second point here. And that is... This text has such rich teaching for us regarding how faith responds in this situation. And I would say there, are, there is the response of faith to fiery trials, and I would think there are at least two responses that are very much uh, found here and perhaps others, but I'm going to focus on two. The response of faith to fiery trials. The first, I think, is found in Peter. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the response of the church regarding Peter. But I want us to think about Peter this morning. This is something that I've needed to hear in my own heart and life, and the Lord has been ministering to me through this week as I've thought about this. Peter is facing imminent death. And how does he respond to that? The account here in Acts 12 emphasizes that from a human perspective, and this is very strongly emphasized, wouldn't you say? That there is no possibility, humanly speaking, there's no possibility of Peter's escape from this soon-to-be fatal execution. Right? I mean, look what he says there in verse 4. On the eve of the planned execution, Peter is handcuffed on the one side to one soldier. He's handcuffed to another soldier on the other side. So you're attached to two guards, literally. You can't get away from them. Imagine if you had to sneeze or something. You know, it's like this guy's got to get his arm over here to help you. He's like, he's stuck. He's, he's attached to these soldiers. And then he's got a locked door between him and freedom. And on the other side of that locked door, he's got more guards. And the guards who are on duty have been trained and they know that if any of the prisoners escape, they're dead. The prisoners themselves will die. This is not Barney Fife, you know, watching somebody in a jail cell in Mayberry where he can reach over and just grab the keys, okay? This, this is high security prison, 
Romans, they knew how to do that. Humanly speaking, Peter's death is a done deal, or so it would seem. I want us to just think for a moment. Knowing that he's helpless to change any of his circumstances, Peter does what? Verse 6. He's sleeping. This guy is sleeping. He's not merely just resting his eyes, trying to sleep. He is sound asleep. And that's why I've called it serene slumber. I mean, this guy is out, sawing Z's. So much so that the angel who appears in verse 7, as if it's not enough to have bright light shining and, you know, an angel all of a sudden appear in front of you, but he has to what? Give him a nudge in the side to wake him up. That's how deeply slumbering he is. Imagine if you knew that tonight is the last night of your life. Tomorrow you're going to die. How much sleep would you get? Obviously, much different scenario. You have the freedom to move around. You can make phone calls, whatever. But obviously, Peter is stuck there. He can't do anything but sleep or worry all night. That's really his choice. That's it. I find it amazing that some of us have far lesser kinds of problems that we face tomorrow that often rob us of sleep and we stay up most of the night. And here's a guy sleeping soundly the whole night. As an aside, I read somewhere online that Americans spend $40 billion on sleep aids in the year 2015. What's the secret? I don't have any cure uh, of all these insomnia, but I do think the text is going to provide us with some helpful insights if we move beyond just the text here in Acts, because the Acts really doesn't say what's going on in Peter's mind, but we do have Peter writing for us some insights as to what he understands about the potential for anxiety and worry and that kind of thing. And I want us to glean several principles from Peter's first epistle. So if you got your Bible again, turn over there to 1 Peter chapter 5. Again, this is written years later. So Peter has escaped from this situation. He's gone on to serve the Lord in many different ways. He's now uh, probably way past his prime in life. And what's the first thing he writes for those who are being persecuted as well, who are also facing this kind of terrible treatment and possibility of losing their life. Well, first thing he says in chapter 5, verse 5, is to remind us that what? God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And he says, we are to therefore, he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. God has a mighty hand. And we need to humble ourselves in light of the fact that God and His mighty hand is far greater than us. And why do we do that? Well, so that God may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety upon Him because He cares for you. I'm going to suggest to you and recommend to you that you keep in mind 
that verse 7, which is often cited as a helpful verse, and it is on dealing with anxiety, that the verse starts off with the word casting. Casting is verbally dependent upon what's come before. It's not the main verb. It's dependent on what previously has been said. That is, to humble yourself under God's mighty hand. The way that we humble ourselves under God's, under God's mighty hand is to what? Cast our cares upon Him. So one of the most important things that helps to keep anxiety in check is to remember who is ultimately in control. It is God's mighty hand that rules over everything. Everything. He's in charge. And let's admit it, you and I are not. So, part of humility is a willingness to patiently wait for things according to God's timetable. Some of us are anxious because we want what we want sooner than what apparently is God's timetable. A person with a proud heart often will try to assume the role of God in that that person wants to be in control. We want to govern our circumstances. We want to control other people around us. Oh, how we would love to do that. And we want to also have our will be made done, be done in the world, so that that, therefore, then I can face life and not be afraid or anxious. David Pallison, a very wise biblical counselor who's written widely on so many topics, and by the way, I again recommend this little booklet called Worry, uh, which is very, very good. I think there might be a couple copies out here on the table, but if we need more, you can ask for me to order more we can. But anyway, he says this, Central to worry is the illusion that we can control things. Worry assumes the possibility of control over the uncontrollable. The illusion of control lurks inside anxiety. Anxiety and control are two sides of the same coin. And when we can't control something, what do we do? We worry about it. As proud people, we oftentimes are doubt that God is truly in control. We doubt sometimes that God is concerned or cares about us in the specific situations and, and problems and trials and issues that we face. In other words, oftentimes God has been pushed to the perimeter and what's at the center of our focus is ourselves and our ability to try to handle this as best we can and control the situation. Pride oftentimes leaves us unconvinced that we can really trust that God cares for us, that we can trust Him no matter what He permits to happen. We can still trust Him to know that He cares for us. Another way to say it is, worry is the fruit of a heart that does not believe in God's fatherly love. You say, where'd you get that? Matthew chapter 6. Let me urge you to read that as your homework assignment. Worry is the fruit of a heart that does not trust God's wise, providential control of all things. One of the best ways to root out 
the idolatry of worry, that is, the best way to root out the fact that something has now taken center stage in my life, other than Christ, maybe it's the opinion of other people. So you're worried about what you're going to wear tomorrow or how your hair's going to turn out tomorrow because you're afraid that these people are going to think, oh my, that looks awful. Or you're worried because your boss is going to think a certain assumption about this presentation you've got to make tomorrow, and therefore your worry really is primarily rooted on what? Your fear of what other people think of you. It just reveals your heart and your real idols that are already there. So how do we fight off these idols? How do we replace them? Well, one thing, we can feed our souls, our minds with Scripture and with the Gospel that will stir up heartfelt, humble worship of God. Someone said, this is worth writing down. It's in your notes. It's that good. Worry thrives when worship dies. Worry thrives when worship dies. You see, our anxiety is rooted in unbelief. Again, Matthew 6. Oh, you of little faith. And faith and childlike trust in God is oftentimes the best remedy for anxiety. Someone came up with a little phrase that was clever. as Fear can keep us up all night, but faith makes one fine pillow. Since we're on this sleeping theme here, being able to sleep at night, not be worried, not be anxious, let's look at Psalm chapter 3. Psalm 3. Psalm 3. The third psalm. If you could just take a quick look at that. Psalms are in the middle of your Bible. Unless you have a study Bible, then it's all off-center a little bit. But it's close to the middle. Psalm 3. We come to this phrase in verse 5 of Psalm 3 where it does, when you read it, you're like, big deal. It's like reading somebody's Facebook post. You know, it's like, do we really need to know that? The psalmist says, I lay down and slept. Big deal. Don't we all do that? I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. Now, may I suggest to you that this psalm packs a real punch if you read it with the understanding and keeping in mind of the real context in which those words are written. And there's a little superscription, a little title in front of, at top of the particular psalm, reminding us and telling us the background of this particular psalm in which David is what? He's being hunted down like an animal by his own son who wants to kill him and put him to death. Now read the statement. I lay down and slept. That's amazing because David has a hundred reasons to lie awake at night with worrisome thoughts. He's not chained to two guards in a, in a prison where he knows I have a certain amount of time here. Nothing's going to happen. I have, no, I have nowhere to go. David can be running around all night. And yet he still laid down and he slept. Notice the meditation he continues on in verses 3 and 4 and verse 6 of that psalm, Psalm 3. You, O Lord, are a shield about me. You are my glory. You are the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice. He answered me from his holy mountain. Do you see how personal this is becoming between him and God? Through this trial, he's realizing the Lord is right here with me. He's helping me. He's listening to me. Then he says in verse 6, I will not be afraid of 10,000 people who have set themselves round about, who have surrounded me. 
I'm not going to be afraid of all that. That's his faith and confidence in God. You see, the gospel, the more we meditate on who we are apart from Christ and the, who we become because of Christ and the grace he's shown us in the gospel, the gospel exposes our heart idolatry. It shows us our foolish attempts to try to control the future. And Jesus calls us to repent of our sin of worry. By the way, worry is sin, is it not? Scripture says don't sin. So if you, if you worry, then you're doing what Scripture tells us not to do. But rather than just focusing on merely repenting of what you know is wrong, we need to replace our anxious thoughts with gospel assurances of what God has done for us in Christ. So one of the great things I think would helpfully meditate on is Romans 8, verse 32. You might want to write that down, Romans 8, 32. It's cheaper than buying a box of Samanex. If since, by the way, it starts off, if God did not spare his own son, but since God did not spare his own son, he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. That since God has not withheld His Son, that is, He gave His Son over, He gave Him up for us all on the cross, how shall He not also, this is God, freely give us all things? If God has not shown you how much, He has already shown you how much He loves you by giving His Son, will He not all the more continue to show that love for you no matter what you're dealing with? See, the gospel of grace calls us to bring all of our cares, all of our sins, all of our idols, all of our concerns to the one who truly loves us. Do you find that your heart is foolishly attempting to control your future? Repent. Turn to the Lord. Don't turn away from Him. Turn toward Him. Pray. Begin to pray about the specific concerns that you face. Make your requests known to God. Sounds familiar, right? Philippians 4. Thank God for His care. Thank God for His assurances He's given you. He's made regarding your future. Thank God that He's in control, no matter what. And then I would suggest another helpful way to respond to, sometimes when we do all struggle with anxiety and worry at different times, it would be helpful to apply due diligence to reprogramming our thinking. Because what you think about will oftentimes result in the elevated uh, heart rate, the additional adrenaline that's pumping in your body, and all of the other symptoms of anxiety that we feel in our bodies. If you reprogram your thoughts, it makes a big difference. Because what are you thinking about when you're worried? You say, everything. Okay, well, look, can you be a little more specific than that? Narrow it down. What is it specifically that's wor that you're worrying about? Is it disaster? Is it some deadline? Is it deficiencies in other people? You're worried about your kids. Worried about your parents. Is it deficiencies within yourself? I'm not going to be able to do it. May I suggest you try to reprogram your thoughts to think about Christ. Think about who Jesus is. Think about what Jesus has done. Think about what Jesus is determined to do in you and with you. Think about the things that are true, things that are honorable, things that are pure and right and lovely and excellent. 
anything that's noteworthy of praise. Get your mind into that mode of thinking. And then let your mind dwell on those things. Continue to get your mind in gear with those. You might have to put up some signs or post-it notes around you. You might need to put reminders on your phone. You might need to have people call you and say, remind me of this later in the day, will you? Send me a little text. It might help to memorize some verses. Many a time, many a time, on those nights when I can't sleep, I start saying to myself, Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, I am with you, God says. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will help you, I will hold you, sorry, I will help you, I will strengthen you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I need to hear that. And I repeat it often, over and over and over. I can do that in the middle of the night without even turning a light on as I try to calm myself and go back to sleep. Finally, let me suggest, as we battle against the tendency to be worried and anxious, not only changing our thoughts and the direction of where we're going, we turn to the Lord, but also focus then on doing whatever we can to fulfill today's responsibilities. Focus on what you can do. Rather than worrying about the future, deal with today. Peter had very few options available to him, right, during that night. He couldn't do anything other than what? Remain right there. So his option was to complain to the guards uh, or sleep. Pretty much was his two options. But for you and I, there are many things we can do and, and do choose to do, which sometimes makes things worse in our worrisome state of mind. So the scriptures call us to replace those things that are offensive to God and pursue those things that are pleasing to God. And sometimes one of the best things we can do to fight against anxiety is to do something constructive. Do something worthwhile. Do something that can help somebody else who's got a problem. You see, we all have enough concerns for today and tomorrow just adds to those concerns. So just focus on the things we can do about today. And therefore, in so doing, invite God into your problems, into your situation. And I realize some of us don't sleep because of various medical problems. And I realize some of us don't sleep because of other contingencies and crying babies or interruptions and phone calls and things that may happen in the night. I'm not trying to suggest just because you don't sleep well, you're living in sin. That's not my point. I am trying to suggest to us that we can hopefully learn that we should expect fiery trials and it calls for the opportunity to say, what does faith do in responding to those fiery trials? Do I know a peace in my life and a calmness in the middle of the storm that says the Lord is with me? I'm ready for whatever he has for me. I can trust him. Let's pray. Before I pray, I just want to again bring to our awareness that all of us are going to face the ultimate storm someday. There's going to be the storm of God's bringing to an end of this world. There'll be a, a day in which we stand before the judge of all the earth and all of us will give an account of ourselves to the one judge who knows everything about us. And some of us are not ready for that day. And we are again reminded that we ought to be very much concerned about that reality. And we should not go to sleep until we have dealt with that 
unpreparedness and come to Christ and confess our need for our Savior, admit that we are a people who have offended a holy God and continue to do so, and that we have nowhere else to turn except Christ and to trust in what He has done for you in His substitution on the cross in paying for your sins that you might be clothed with His righteousness. And so I urge you, if that's true of you, before this day ends, before you lay down and try to sleep, come to Christ. Receive Christ as your personal Savior and know the peace with God that will bring you into the peace of God. Father, we pray as we meditate on this portion of your word, we pray that we never lose sight of your sovereign majesty. Humble us, Lord, by reminding us that we do not know and un- can, nor can we ever understand all of your ways. Forgive us for trying to do so. But Lord, help us to hang on to your promises. Help us to read your word and to prepare ourselves for the the realities of what we know are going to happen in this world. There are some awful things that happen in a broken and fallen world. Help us to be prepared for that, Lord, and help us to be responding in faith, turning to Christ rather than turning away from Him. Thank you that in the gospel we have hope for many of us who still struggle with sin. We thank you that there is one who is greater than our sin. It is the grace we have in Jesus Christ. Help us to trust in Him. Help us to learn and to grow and to be refined through our trials that we might be a people who trust you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing a song about how we can cast all of our cares upon the one who loves